Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. It's not about going back to the past and glorifying the past and saying, oh, life was so great then when we had fresh, you know, we didn't even have running water then. So, no, it, everything wasn't great. But I think it's important to, to reference those times because it gives you a context for how to remain relevant with your culture and move the culture forward. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Anna Huesel, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard. On today's show, Anna talks to Michelle and Suzanne Russo, the sisters behind the book Provisions, The Roots of Caribbean Cooking. Later, I'll be talking to Gretchen Rubin, who you may know as the author of The Happiness Project. We'll be talking about her latest book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, and what it has to do with, like, staying calm in the kitchen. That's important. It is. But Anna, how is it hanging out with Michelle and Suzanne? They are so cool. The Russos are awesome. They are sisters. They own a restaurant together in Kingston, Jamaica. Their great-grandmother in the 1930s, if you can believe it, owned one of the first commercial Jamaican patty companies in Kingston. That is a, a really good story. I want to read it. There's a lot of cool history in the book. But what's the food like in the book? What's the recipes like? The food is really exciting. It's all vegetarian. It all really hinges on these important ingredients to the West Indies. Um, we talked about breadfruit and why it's so cool. We talked about plantains, how to tell when they're ripe. And we talked about culantro, an interesting herb that not a lot of people have heard of. Culantro is great. They have it all over Vietnam. I remember having it in many bowls of pho. Yeah. Here's Anna talking to Michelle and Suzanne. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Suzanne and Michelle. Thank you. We're so thrilled to be here on this beautiful, snowy New York day. Yes, Very we love snowy. We love the city. So, hey, you know, cold or hot, we like it. So we're glad to be here. You are the authors of the new book, Provisions, The Roots of Caribbean Cooking. One of the through lines of the book that I've noticed is that it's a lot about the women of the Caribbean and the women who kind of created this cuisine, the West Indies. What made you decide to focus on women? My sister clearly wants me to answer that. <laughs> um, I think um, our, our focus on women came really through a personal um, exploration of our own, you know, female line. Um, start During our first cookbooks, um, our first cookbook, Caribbean Potluck, we sort of began an exploration of the family sort of line and in that discovered all of this information about our great-grandmother, um, a woman named Martha Matilda Briggs, who had this really rich and powerful legacy um, in business and with food, a food business, and had this rich culinary legacy. Um, she was the maker and owner of the Briggs Cafe, which was one of the first commercial patty makers in the island, which um, for those who don't know, or most I think in New York know what a Jamaican beef patty is, we just mm -hmm. call it a patty, um, is now a sort of commonplace and standard fare across Jamaica and every other part of the world um, as a snack or a quick lunch. And... Um, 
you know, this was in the early 1930s. She was a, a woman of color um, in a sort of post-colonial time before even Jamaica was independent and had this really rich um, legacy of both being a very successful businesswoman, um, written about in the newspapers, adver- she advertised, she had court cases. Um, she really sort of, she was very celebrated, yet we had never heard of her and no one in our family had really taken the time to discover or talk about her. And it just made us sort of stop and have a... Uh, a real moment of reflection because our own life in business and our own career in food clearly was not just, you know, a happenstance. It made us realize there was a much bigger story and a much bigger cycle and circle that we were connecting. And I think um, that discovery led us to um, inc- mentioning her, but really wanting to explore more about the cuisine through the lens of a female perspective, um, because as always, you know, for us and certainly in many parts of the world, women have always been the sort of cooks and caregivers and nurturers and caretakers. And, um, you know, that I think was the impetus and how to do that then is really the story of provisions. Yeah. And there hasn't always been a written record of the work that women do in the culinary space also. Is there a written account of uh, of your great-grandmother's patty recipe? No, there is no, um, unfortunately, and this was kind of the sad part that that, that um, drove this impetus and, a, and this desire to tell this story in almost a, in, in, for me, it was almost a frantic way. I felt like a sense of urgency that it needed to come out um, because despite all of that, despite all the accolade, the recognition, the references in, in local literature, various things, there is no actual documented patty recipe. Um, so if we even wanted to relaunch that in our business now, it's something we would have to create because it doesn't exist. And I think that for us, what that that really signified was that all of these women, especially in societies where there was slavery, um, and Jamaica is a, you know, was a sugar plantation society. So there is a, there's that slave culture. The role that women played was never, ever documented in any way. You know, the domestic life of a plantation was not something that either journals or or writers or planters of the day or the era ever wrote about. And so the first narratives that you start to see about women and the role that women had on plantations is either mid-century, you know, in the mid-1900s, you know, 1950s when they started to do research, or, um, you know, things that were penned by women of the era, recipe books and things like that. But that really started post-emancipation. So... You know, there's a lot of repiecing of the history, um, but I think that the, the fact that nothing was documented, and including in the mid 1900s, our grandmother's recipe was was a, was really important for us to to start this process of writing down, in our way and in our voice, um, these stories of the past because. It's not about going back to the past and glorifying the past and saying, oh, life was so great then when we had fresh, you know, we didn't even have running water then. So, no, it was, everything wasn't great. But I think it's important to to reference those times because it gives you a context for how to remain relevant with your culture and move the culture forward in a way that that, you know, all can appreciate. There are a few texts that you reference in provisions, older cookbooks from the 1800s or maybe a little after. What was the process like of finding those? And were there any like big surprises um, just in cookbooks that you came across? Um, the process was almost, I would say, like um, a non-planned one. You know, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, non-planned. Yeah, we, 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 uh, we encountered there was one book that was republished in Jamaica in, in more modern times, which was the Book of Jamaican Cookery. Um, and that had herbal recipes and such. So I had access to that. 
it's no longer in publication, but I did have a copy of that. And, you know, just reading through that was always very fascinating. But then as I was doing research in other types of journals, what I found was not a lot of cookbooks in that era, but a, um, a few female written journals that reference some of the same things um, and the same methods of preparation. And then when you get into the early 1900s, you know, there's a wonderful cookbook that is actually by... Nina Compton, the James Beard winner's grandmother, um, that that out of Saint Lucia, out of Saint Lucia, um, and she has its early 1900s. I'm not sure the exact date, maybe 1930s, 1940s, and again, some of those same recipes, same methods of preparation, different twists because it's a different island, but um, and so it just kind of things just fell into place, and it connected the narrative, connected for the dots. Us. I think yeah. for us, the book sort of began to tell itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we we were very clear that we wanted to tell a book that based very much took into account the history of the region from a perspective of how that history influenced the culinary landscapes of the day and how it has it how the ingredients and the ways of eat, eating the food which really have remained very relevant and consistent not only in Jamaica but across the region when you jump around to other islands how they came to play how they came to to be cooked the way they were what were the influences that made them such because I think no one had really ever stopped to look at it from that perspective. And so you see this very rich sort of combination of the th- things inherited from colonialism dependent on who the colonizer was. In our case, it was the British. And those that then came from, you know, the local residents in the form of slaves and then indigenous other settlers. And so, you know, we see that across the region. And so you find that across the region, they're the same ingredients, um, slightly varied ways of preparing them. Um, and then obviously in the slave, you know, the journals we found and the old cookbooks, a lot of those same references to different. And so that sort of began as really the coarse place where we were starting to tell the book. And then that female sort of narrative of it's all these women who were always cooking these things or rendering these foods, you know, appetizing in very simple and very difficult circumstances. Um, and certainly, of course, our grandmother then connected to that in, a, in the more modern day. And so I think the book began to sort of form out itself over time. And it was a long process. We were working on it for and three I, years. I think the big surprise for us was how sophisticated the food was despite being simple, um, and the range of ingredients they cooked with. So they'll, they'll reference, you know, berries um, and that grapes, muscat grapes grow and, you know, things that just are not considered Caribbean at all. And then they have um, also, you know, recipes where they layer in, it's a turtle soup and they layer in this and then they add sherry at the end and they finish it with butter. And it's just how, how um, you know, just how sophisticated and layered in flavor from a culinary perspective, the food would have been, considering that it was been cooked over an open flame, you know, in a hearth. So you would have had that as well, you know, the techniques of, of, they of cooking. They were, you know, the planters were known for these, you know, lavish banquets and feasts where, you know, food was like many, many courses. And when you just start to think about the lack of, you know, you know, from invention, what they would have done to render and be able to create this stuff without electricity or all. It was just a fascinating sort of compelling tale. And a lot was written about when you go back in the journals and you go back into the history about the planters' banquet and how and what would have been consumed. So it really sort of, we, we spent a lot of time reading and looking and researching and then really taking our own personal experience of growing up in Jamaica. We lived in Trinidad for a number of years. We traveled through the islands that always have. Um, and just of looking at all of the commonalities that we experienced um, as a way to really bring a, a new light to what the food of this region and of the Caribbean and the West Indies is. Were you tempted at all to focus on Jamaica or was it always going to be a, a 
a project of um, the whole West I, Indies? We think we 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 have a very global consciousness, and certainly we have a very pan Caribbean consciousness because we've always, you know, growing up and living in Trinidad as well as Jamaica, we traveled a lot through other islands, and we've always been able to see those similarities and appreciate the differences between islands because you may think it's just one place, but think of the difference between New Orleans and New York. You know what I mean? And and the Caribbean is like that. You know, you so. How it is in Trinidad is completely different from Grenada and St. Lucia and, and French islands have and, a different influence. Yeah. The Spanish islands, it's really fascinating. So we, so we really wanted to keep it, um, uh, you know, Jamaica is a core of it. And a lot of the stories do come from a personal experience and a personal narrative. But th- we wanted to also, you know, encompass the whole region because we just we feel like a part of 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 this common experience of being from the islands that a lot of people can't really understand unless you actually come from an island in the Caribbean, you know? Hmm. And you both own a restaurant in Kingston, is that right? Yeah, we um, we currently, in this current time now, we've recently gone back into the restaurant business, having taken a step away from it for a number of years. And we um, we own and operate a, play, a restaurant called Summer House at the Ligony Club. Uh, Ligony Club is a, an old members club left in the heart of Kingston um, that we refurbed and upgraded and opened back um last year may so early early days yet um really very much focusing on this the same kind of food that we do in the book um you know modern interpretations of of caribbean ingredients our take on them very much the food that we like to eat um you know very much in our, looking at the artisanal aspect of the cuisine which i think has been overlooked and presenting it in a in you know in, in very you know appealing and sophisticated elegant ways as business owners you must meet a lot of tourists to the island are there any major misconceptions that people have about Jamaican food when so they many. show up at your restaurant? So, so many. Yeah. Um, they don't tend to have them at the restaurant because we are in, uh, I mean, luckily for us in a way, we're in Kingston. So um, while you get visitors, they're, they're more business travelers. Um, a lot of the more, the, the, the sort of resort areas would get the typical tourist that is expecting one thing. One of the biggest misnomers and misunderstandings is that, that everything in, the, in Jamaica is about jerk. Which is mm-hmm. very so much not. True. It's absolutely um, opposite. And that jerk is pan chicken. So not true. So pan chicken, which is what they talk about, where they cook it in the drum pan, is a completely different thing. And jerk is really um, something that we eat on a weekend, or as Suzanne always says, driving to the country on the street vacation. Food it's a street that we food. buy for at the beach, or you know, if you're at the beach, you'll go and pick up some jerk. But I mean, it mm. rarely sits at a table, and do we eat it at dinner or lunch? Or any other time of the day. So it's right. not sort of commonly consumed and it's in also, the way it's presented. It's also not a seasoning. So you can't buy jerk. And it's, 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 the, it's the method of marination and it's also the method of cooking. It's much more like southern barbecue. Mm-hmm. It's a slow cooked process over wood. Um, and so that's the jerking process. With its own history. With its own history that's tied to the maroons and, and you know, there's a whole legacy of, of how jerk came into being and all of that. And... Um, you know, and it's also so it's not something you can buy in a bottle and put on as anything. a seasoning. Yeah. on. right. So, I'm sure all the tourist stores sell it. Yeah, the menus here when we come to the states, it's always interesting. A you know jerk chicken sandwich, or like mm, that's which is basically a jerk sauce or a jerk marinade, which is really not how it's consumed. The best way to have jerk is really, you know, out of a foil with a piece of hardo bread, fresh, chopped on a piece of wood chopper, right off the off the pimento wood um, smoker. People will do it with chicken, but it's originally pork. Yeah. And okay. that's it's best. It was with done pork. with wild hog because the maroons who were who were free slaves who lived in the mountains would capture hog and they would 
bury a pit and they would slow, slow smoke it over a couple of days um, and they would eat it that way. So that's how it was typically consumed. So you get a lot of diners come come into your restaurant and just saying, where's the jerk chicken? <laughs> no, not really. No. I would say no. I would say quite the opposite. I think Jimmy, our our client base is much more um, Kingstonians mm. and business people and much more, um, you know, expats and travelers who really know that jerk isn't eaten that way at all. I think that's something that um, is very much an outside perspective of the cuisine, which is really not at all how people see it in Kingston. And I do think when tourists are there... They are taken out to traditional jerk centers to get jerk and will have it with, you know, wherever they can on the island because there are a lot of them. Um, I think another big misnomer is that, you know, it's a we don't have I mean, the range of fruit and vegetable and produce that is available and consumed on a daily basis is also fairly misunderstood and unknown. I also think that the other big mix up is ackee. So a lot of, you know, fair around ackee because it's a banned substance or it's poisonous and all of this. And I know it's um, it was not, you know, imported into the States for a long time when, you know, it's really a part of it once you've cleaned the ackee part and that, you know, they will say it's like an egg. It's absolutely nothing like eggs. Um, Aki is a fruit, but it's also a fat. So it's, it's more like an more avocado. Like avoc- avocado. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of those sorts of perceptions where because it's yellow and it looks like this, it's this, but it really isn't any of those things. And it's it's a unique sort of, it's unique in taste and appearance and texture onto itself. It's very hard to compare it to anything else. I'd like to talk about the title of the book. What does provisions mean in the context of your book? It means something a little different than mm-hmm. what we what we tend to think of yeah, provisions. Sure. Um, it's a play on words yes, for us, really. It's a play on yeah. words. Um, there are three aspects to it, really, um, you know, in uh, and I'll speak to one. Um, in uh, During slavery, um, the British Slave Code um, sort of dictated that all slaves be given a plot of land to grow their own produce. And that really, um, you know, was existed in islands where they had land available that they could do that. And this was to alleviate some of the pressure of feeding um, slaves. And so that plot of land was called a provision ground. And they would have been given um, one day every fortnight to farm that ground. And they could reap um, and sell what they reaped from the grounds in Sunday markets. Often because of this, the nature of, of, you know, the distance and, and the types of things they could grow, they grew less perishable items. So ground provisions, which uh, let's then talk about those, like yam and, and, and those types of things were what they farmed there. And then they would bring the, that home, sell some at market, and then use it for their sustenance for the week. And provisions also... In Jamaica, we call all starchy vegetables that are out of the earth ground provisions. And so that would encompass sweet potatoes, yam, all kinds of yam. We have yellow yam, you have white yam, you have yampi, you have sweet yam. Cocoa yam. Cocoa. Um, then you have cassava. And then you would have... Um, Breadfruit, all those out of the ground, could fall into that. So really, ground provisions, which is a very big staple and a and a starch that is consumed daily by most people, we refer to them as ground provisions. Um, and obviously, the word provisions itself is you know sources of nourishment and you know food itself. And so it was really a play on all three and the roots of Caribbean cooking. Obviously, because provisions tend to be roots that are in the earth tubers, it was also that play on that where you're you know it's food of the earth. I want to talk about breadfruit. Mm. Breadfruit features very heavily in the book. 
What is it? What should people oh, cook with it? We love breadfruit. You can cook everything with breadfruit. It's so good. It's <laughs> Ooh, so my favorite thing so to eat. So good. Um, it grows on a tree originally brought into the Caribbean um, by planters from Tahiti. Actually, it was Captain on Captain Guy's ship um, uh, as a as again an, an additional cheap form of, of sustenance for for people to eat, slaves to eat. They were breadfruit trees were planted all around sugar estates. Um, they didn't like the texture of it originally, so it was never consumed. But it can be used. In so many ways, I mean, it's we, a big green fruit, and yeah. the, and it's sort of on the tree, and and it, it really isn't like bread. But I suppose once it's cooked on the inside, it does have a sort of bready, starchy, doughy, yeah. starchy texture. Has a heart in the center that you cut out. But the best, I mean, you can roast it on an open flame or in mm-hmm. the oven. That's fantastic with just butter and salt. You can fry it, make chips. Mm-hmm. You can boil chips it. Um, you can make it in like soups and stews. I mean, even in these old cookbooks, we saw desserts and yeah. things that desserts, they bread use. Bread pudding, it, maybe bread, bread pudding. fruit. Um, We've used we've done um, a um, fritter with it, you know, where we boil it and puree it and mash it and then deep fry it with a uh, one sauce. of the dishes of this one of the sides that we have at the restaurant now is like a gratin where you spread fruit yeah. with braise and then it's done with coconut milk. We can do it as a gratin with cheese. I mean, it's a fantastic ingredient. Does it have much flavor? Is it or is it more of a textural? It has thing? it has its own oh, flavor. Yeah. It's a slightly sweet. I mean, there are different types of breadfruit. They have mm-hmm. yellow heart. They have the most the sort of the best breadfruit that people always want to eat is a yellow heart. Yellow heart, which is a much longer. They're short, round. They're round ball like football ones, and then there are some that are more sort of oval, elongated. And that, the, that that is the best. That is the most delicious one because it tends to be a bit sweeter mm-hmm. and softer. So when you cut it piping hot and you know it's charred on the outside and you just slather some butter and salt on it or yes, some honey it's very that nice sounds good. And, it's, and it does ripen you know like how planting will ripen so mm-hmm. over time you know you can eat breadfruit green absolutely but if it gets too ripe it can be a little bit too it's funky. not as nice it's kind of funky it doesn't taste yeah yeah it doesn't taste good as a savory but so there is a there is a taste that's unique to it i would say it's slightly nutty um, I think it has uh, a sort of a soft, smooth, creamy, but but um, dense texture yeah. um, that needs moisture. That it could, you know? and some some of them are drier than others. So the yellow heart is yellowing, actually a little more yellow in color and very very moist. Whereas the other smaller breadfruit yeah. can be very dry, and those are better fried. So it does need a little moisture, so that's why it's good with butter. You could drizzle it with olive oil. Um, it's really nice fried because of that. It makes good, you know, braises or stews because it will absorb all the liquid, and then it will take on the flavor of what you cook it with. That's what's amazing about it. Speaking of starchy things, uh, there's a really cool recipe in the book that I wrote about on Taste yes. a few months ago <laughs> where you take a whole ripe plantain in the skin and roast it, kind of like a roast potato. Right. Sure. It's so cool. How the the part that's hard to me, though, like there are plantains at every grocery store in mm-hmm. New York. How do you tell when it's ripe enough? Because mm. the difference between an unripe plantain and a ripe plantain, they're like worlds apart. They're like sure. different But fruits. we eat them every way, though. So to be mm-hmm. clear, I mean, plantain is another thing that we just love. But in in you know in the Caribbean, we will eat plantain and um, green fried almost like a tostones or what we'd call we call it um pressed plantain pressed plantain in Jamaica where you fry it green and eat it with salt then we would eat it ripe as an accompaniment to any meal as a, any starch but also meal. pan fried and it would be pan fried it could be done in the oven and it would they'll boil it um and then there's the dish we have there or you can roast it and so the 
blacker the skin gets and the yellower the skin gets is the riper it is. And so it goes from having like an all green, sort of like a mottled green and yellowish color. And then it goes to all yellow and then it goes to yellow with black. And then, you know, it's really sweet. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it's also the you could test it by how easy it would peel. Yeah. So a very, very ripe plantain will peel a little bit like a banana, although you'll have to cut the top off. Mm-hmm. Um, the this, this skin will just slip off. And then you'll have this slightly damp but firm, you know, fruit inside. And that's very ripe. And that's when you get the ripe sweet one. If it is like really hard and you couldn't peel it and you would have to take a knife and scrape it, then that would be a very, very green planting. And the turned would be easier to peel, but it's still going to be very hard inside. And you'd have to almost scrape the strings off and stuff with you know, the back of a knife because it, it will they'll adhere to, to the fruit. So we, we like it every way, but the, t- the typical, um, you know, island sort of accompaniment will be very, very ripe sliced. And, um, and you can get over too, too ripe planting as well. If it gets almost rotten and slimy, then it's, too, it's gone too then bad. Then you don't want to eat it. It's gone too far. Then you don't want to eat it. So if it's completely black and it's kind of mushy when you touch it to, to peel it, then you know it's, it's a little too far gone and you may want to just discard that. I mean, maybe you could make it into like muffins or something. But or like fritters. Banana bread or fritters. Yeah. But I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't try to eat that just roasted or raw or whatever. I also, you write about the herb culantro in the mm-hmm, book, mm-hmm. not to be confused with cilantro. Mm-hmm. They're different things. Mm-hmm. How do you use culantro and what is it like? That's another one that I see sometimes at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious about it. I mean, it tastes a lot like cilantro. In Trinidad, this is a big part of our life in Trinidad growing up. So in Trinidad, it's called Shadow Benny and it's in everything. It's a big, big part of the, it's a big mainstay of the diet, of the flavor profile of, a, of Trinidadian cuisine in various forms, sometimes in both the Creole and the Indian. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a Latin, it's a Latin American or South American um, herb. Um, Venezuela is yeah. very close to in Trinidad. Um, so it, it, I think it's very, Trinidadian food has that influence along with, you know, the French influence and the Portuguese and the Indian. Um, it's thicker and broader, broader leaves and thicker. It's not so, it's, it's more, much more resinous, resinous than yeah. uh, very watery, fine cilantro. And I mean, you cook it sort of the same way. You can use it. They're pretty interchangeable. Um, and you use it to season really much anything you want. If you like the flavor, no, let, let's put a quota. Some people hate cilantro. Yeah. Some love it. So I think culantro would be the same because it has a similar flavor yes. profile. And you kind tend of- to... Yeah, it's like a. They say you have this. Some people say it tastes like soap. I don't get that at all. No. Mm-hmm. So they say you have the cilantro gene, or you don't have it. And apparently, this is a scientific thing. I don't know this for a fact, so I could be, you know, chatting foolishness. But I've been told this is a scientific thing that you either have that like cilantro or hate cilantro gene. Um, the thing with with culantro to remember is that it is very. Um, it won't be as easy to eat raw. You would have mm-hmm. to chiffonade it very fine. Uh, it's it's better for seasoning, cooking, makes a fantastic pesto. Yeah. You know, chimichurri, um, salsa verde, like, you know, it's good in pepper sauces, things blended out. Um, so you, you wouldn't necessarily want, you could, I mean, I would eat it in a salad, but I don't know. It may be intense for it, some yeah, people. Yeah, and it may be thicker. It's a much, the leaf is thicker and broader. And still that really strong kind of soapy, yeah, very strong, light, soapy, refreshing yeah, yeah. taste. Mm, yeah. Which I like. <laughs> what has been the recipe from the book that people are cooking the most? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's hard. For, I think it's so interesting because I think everyone takes something different from it. You know, um, we did an interview recently and um, the interviewer just absolutely loved the provisions, the provisions bowl because it was so simple. And then someone else wrote to us on Instagram to say that 
the salad, the island salad with the mango, avocado, and um, planting chips is one of the most delicious things she's ever had. And then, you know, it's so personal. I think food is such a personal journey. I think, you know, it depends on what you like and, um, you know, what you connect with. I mean, what would you say, Mish? Um... I think we've gotten a lot of um, comments on the gnocchi, the sweet potato gnocchi. Yeah, but we cook um, that in the restaurant. Um, people and we've can taste it. Yeah, and we've gotten a lot of comments on. There's another ripe plant in dish in the in the book, which you didn't speak about, but it's it's with a mornay sauce, um, and it's layered with some Gruyere, and and that's very very good. Almost and more the, like a lasagna. Yeah, and the cassava pancakes. A couple of people have. have yeah, the have cassava pancakes are that. fantastic, yeah. and so typically. All oh, you know what else too? But so perfectly delicious. Every time we oh. do, even if they're not cooking it, but every time we do it, people freak out and then they go and cook it, is the quinoa kale with the candied sorrel. Yeah, that's because a huge... That's a really But that's not because person. I think they tried it in the book. I think yeah. they've eaten it with us because we do it a lot in our events and at yeah. the restaurant. And it's really generated a whole lot of interest. Cool. I can't wait to cook more out of this book. Thank you so much for coming, oh, Suzanne and Michelle. It's, a, it's been... such a pleasure to be here. We're glad you we're glad you like the book. It's very flattering for us and we're very grateful. It's a really cool book and beautiful photos too. Yes, yeah. Ellen Silverman was our photographer and she is such a master. We had a really great team Francis of Boswell women that worked with us. And we did it all at home in my house in Jamaica. Amazing. So it was a really joyful project. That's really cool. It really shows. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Here's Matt talking to Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen Rubin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be talking to you. I'm really excited. I loved, I, I just stopped, you wrote about mise en place. Oh, yes. Which is a word we use all the time at Taste. It's super important with cooking. Yeah. But you write about it in a different context. Tell me about that. Right, so mise en place is like things in their place. It's, you know, the French phrase. And it's about when a when a chef or someone who's getting ready to cook has everything together. They have the ingredients, they're chopped, they're measured, they have all the tools that they need. And so when a person's ready to start cooking, they have everything everything they need kind of beautifully and the idea is it's beautifully arranged these beautiful little bowls and <laughs> and so i think for and like if you're trying to do pay bills it's like it's just much more satisfying if everything you need is right at hand or like i have something called my special drawer we don't have a more imaginative name <laughs> for it and it's like any kind of like thing that i need is in the special drawer um and so it's just that feeling of having your tools at hand just makes working feel so much more effortless and satisfying than if every 10 minutes you have to jump up and go hunt down a pair of scissors. So the important part is putting the time into the preparation, right? Seeing preparation as a stage. That's what I love about mise en place. It is a stage. It's something that is worth consideration and taking time because I think sometimes we feel like, well, I should just get started. I need to just jump in. And then you end up spending more time because you're not set up. Uh, I also like Clean As You Go, yes. which is another really a pinnacle of home cooking. We talk about it often on Taste yeah. is when you're cooking, you have to be mindful of that. You don't want that pile of dishes. Right. So let's, let's also talk about that Clean As You Go mentality in your life in general. No. I mean, it's well, one of them is the one-minute rule. This is something yeah. where if you can do something in less than a minute, do it without delay. Because a lot of times the things that you clean as you go, they don't take much effort. You could hang up your coat. You could put your dirty socks in the hamper. You could put the cap back on the toothpaste and put it back in the in the cabinet. And just by saying it's less than a minute, you, that somehow makes people feel like 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 it's more possible. And then all those little tasks are taken care of as you go. And so when you look back over your shoulder, you don't see this just di- disaster um, that you're going to have to walk back into. But everything's sort of been taken care of uh, en route. 
On those rare occasions you do cook, because you're not a huge home cook, but no. tell me, do you clean as you go? Do you I follow do. your own principles? I do, because I don't like seeing a lot of stuff out. So I will. I do clean as I go, um, and I, I get an enormous satisfaction from just like, you know, it, clear the clear counter. I'm for a me, counter clearer. Oh, my gosh. For me, it's the same. If you can finish your meal, plate your dish, and have a clean counter, yes. it's like even if the dish doesn't taste great, even if you've like forgotten steps, <laughs> it tastes better for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny because on the Happier podcast, we had somebody where she and her husband had the had the deal like if you clean, the other person cooks. But she was a clean as you go person, so he was like, "That's great." And he was the one; he was the kind where like, "I'm going to use every dish in the house." Oof. And he had no he had the moral hazard that she was doing the cleaning, so it was sort of like, "Okay, how do we work this out?" Because clearly, that's not sustainable over the long term. Definitely not. But there are people who love to use. It's like they go out of their way to. Use every bowl possible. Well, in New York, our kitchens are not as big no. as many parts of the country, so we actually have to clean yes. as we go. Because we don't have that much. Yeah. No. Yeah. You, yeah. Write, you write about the idea of dungeons. Explain yeah. what those are, and it also oh. explains some dungeons that might be in, in the kitchen. Ooh, under the sink. <laughs> it's bad under the sink. What's a dungeon it, first? Oh, so a dungeon is just like a place in your home where it's maybe dank or dirty or like it's messy, but in a way that's kind of gross. Um, so it, like maybe in a basement that's a little bit wet, but I think for most people, they're like, maybe it's the bottom, uh, the bottom drawer where sometimes stuff kind of leaks down there, it gets stuck or, you know, you get a maple sugar, maple syrup incident that never quite got dealt oh, with, freaky. uh, ketchup, um, kind of, or, or like, uh, you open up, maybe there's a drawer like the, um, the, uh, the cutlery drawer where it's open all the time. So it gets crumbs in it. And it's just like, you look in there and you're like, oh man, that's just yeah. nasty, but I I don't. Am I so going to take, take that the, one minute? Take the time, and you will feel amazing. And under the sink, it's like clear that stuff out. And uh, and when you clear out a dungeon, it's almost disproportionately good because since you've solved something that was really a drag, it feels great. It feels and so good. You also write about the idea of the broken window. Yes. So how does a broken window uh, approach to organization and just me- your mentality apply to the kitchen? Well, there's certain things that just signal to people that things are out of control. Now, for a lot of people, the kitchen, because it's such a used, beloved place in the household, it just becomes a repository of everything. And, like, everybody's got a counter or, like, it's the end of the table or something where everything just starts getting piled up and piled up. And it's since, and then people just keep adding to it because they're clutter magnets. And once something's messy, it tends to get messier. Um, and so you really want to fight that and and uh, try to figure out ways to uh, keep everything going where it needs to go so that it doesn't pile up in that way. You write in you've written a lot about the idea of happiness. I just wanted to know, like, how does cooking make you happy? Mm. Well, I think there's just something primal about cooking. It's it's food, it's warmth, it's often tied to hospitality, the idea of taking care of ourselves, taking care of other people. It's mastery for a lot of people, like learning new skills. It's the, you know, the exotic, I'm going to try something new, I'm going to taste something new, I'm going to experience a new culture. Um there's so many aspects. There's the beauty of it, just looking at the food, the colors, the smells. It's so it takes us into our bodily experience. You can't bookmark it. You can't do it behind a screen. You got to be there in real life. It's happening right now, um, and so I think there is just something very, very special about um, about food and about cooking. Do you do you buy this idea of like unplugging and cooking being a way to unplug, put that phone away, put it away in like three rooms away? 
Well, I think it depends on who you are because I yeah. certainly know a lot of people who like, I love to listen to your podcast yeah. while cooking. You know, yeah. like for some people, it's a pleasant time to kind of space out. And, yeah. you know, so I think if for each of us, you have to think about, well, what do you want it to be? Do you want it to be a time of silence and you're really in the moment? Do you want to have it to be a time when you're, you're, you're listening to, or, or maybe you're listening mm-hmm. to an audiobook? For a lot of people, yeah. these kind of household times can be a time to listen to an audiobook. You might not have time in your life to read, but you could listen to an audiobook while you're like loading the dishwasher. Um, so I think it really depends on you and what you want from the experience. And you want to think, well, how can I make this experience as pleasant as it can be? Because maybe there's ways I could make it easier or more fun. It's like, maybe if I buy an amazing set of knives, that's going to make everything more fun. But for someone else, the amazing knives are just going to sit in a drawer. Like, what's the point of that? Mm -hmm. So it's really like, who are you and what's going to make Mm -hmm. you happier? I think screen time is one thing that cooking kind of takes you away. You cannot do screen time. It's kind of impossible. Yes, you can do listening, but you cannot do screen time. And I think there's a relief to that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We write about a lot of that on taste. We talk about the idea that cooking is is therapeutic. I think it's really, really key. Well, and I think it's also that it does take you into the. I think we we want to, to to connect with our bodies, and screen time is like you're not. It's only sight, and it yeah. doesn't. It doesn't even really feel like looking. But but cooking, it's the it's the flavors, it's the texture, things changing color, mm-hmm. you know, translucence in mm-hmm. the smells, and it's changing and temperature. It's very very physical in a pleasant way. Okay, you said you didn't cook, but honestly, you the way you talk about food, you obviously have at least one recipe. For our last question, I want to know what is your go to recipe that you scrambled eggs. Okay. Oh, I eat scrambled eggs every day. I never tire of scrambled eggs. I love scrambled eggs. I just I feel like eggs are per- they're a perfect food. They're beautiful. I love to look at them in the carton. I like the the kind of the creative dis- um, destruction of breaking the shells. Um, I I just I really love. The egg. Take me through your eggs because there's a couple ways you can scramble. You can do hard scrambles where they're a little bit harder. And that's but what I like. You so you don't like the mushy. No, ones. no, no. I ah, like the hard ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I like them really dry. Yeah. yeah. See, I I, I was that way until I learned. Actually, Chrissy Teigen had this ah. soft egg recipe when she was just a blogger before yeah. she had books. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like soft eggs. Well, I, try it one time. Just okay. pull it off when you think it's raw. Because remember, after you pull it off the heat, it's going to cook for another minute to a minute right. and a half in right. the pan. Right. So when you think it's too raw, pull it off. Uh-huh. Under plate. Try it. Okay. Try it. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, dramatically. Dramatically. Yeah, like double my double my, my possibilities. I want to. Yeah, I want to see on the Instagram. Okay. okay. All right. I'll do it. Gretchen Rubin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, it's so much fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.